All right, you can have your Bibles in Genesis chapter 6 this morning. We're back to what we were talking about last week, times of darkness. Uh, This is kind of a part two, as it were, uh, and I call this a design problem. Recall last time we were together, uh, we were thinking through the idea uh, in Genesis chapter 6 that many people have espoused as it relates to what the scriptures say and what we would call uh, the the Nephilim theory. And we'll uh, review that in just a few moments and go back through what we had talked about last week. We dedicated most of the the sermon time, actually, to talking about this theory and and what the, 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 the content of the theory, which I deem false, but wanting to give you the ideas surrounding the content of that theory. And then I spent the final minutes giving you as it were, the practical reasons why that theory is not open and shut, it's not irrefutable, why it is that there are reasons that we can think outside of, of, of the reasons given for that theory um, that would explain things just as well, if not better, so that we don't have to rely upon the, the Nephilim idea, as the theory espouses, in order to feel as though that we are being consistent to the scriptures. But I told you that everything that I, I, I talked about last week was more practical. The practical reasoning why it was that I felt as though this theory was not necessary as the means of interpreting this text. But I told you that this time, this week, we're going to spend a good deal of time talking theologically. We're going to dig down to the root of why it is that theologically I feel that this theory is not just wrong, but it's actually somewhat dangerous. And that's where we applied last week, is that our interpretation does matter. There are certain interpretations that are entirely benign, and we're actually going to start with a benign thinking uh, of the, the implications of the Nephilim theory uh, this morning. And, and what I mean by benign is that you hear something and you say, well, okay, that's a theory, that's interesting, one day we'll be in heaven and we'll find out, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, the way I often describe it when I'm preaching is it's not something to split the church over, right? Uh, it's something that is not that big of a deal where we can agree to disagree and we can move on. And in many ways, when you come to a theory such as this one, yeah, we can say that. We can agree to disagree and we can say it's really not that big of a deal. But with this particular one, I feel, again, I don't think it's something to split the church over, but I do feel as though there's something deeper going on here, something deeper in a trend that you find um, that I think is, is, is potentially dangerous. And you'll find this happen. Maybe you've had friends that have, this has happened to before, where they've caught on to something some teacher, some theory, some idea, some doctrine, and you've heard that and you say, well, that's not correct. As a matter of fact, that sounds really silly, but you know, whatever, okay, they're going to go and and they're going to believe this and whatnot. But what you didn't realize, you didn't push back that much because it doesn't seem to really matter. But as you walk down, as they walk through life, you find that that actually is kind of a gateway to really crazy stuff, to deeper problems, and to, to more dangerous things, things that actually do matter. And this one theory actually drew them into much deeper, much more dangerous waters that you may not have even anticipated. And I think that this particular one is one that, as people kind of uh, wrap the, the nature of Genesis, or at least the nature of Genesis 1 through 11, around this idea of this pre-diluvian civilization of the Nephilim, these uh, man Uh, angel hybrid idea, this can actually be 
theologically dangerous. And that's where I'm going to take you today. But let's do a a quick review of what we talked about last week. Get some people up to speed. If you weren't here, of course, it's on YouTube. I encourage you to listen to that first part, uh, as the second part will make a whole lot more sense after having heard it. Um, But we'll we'll start by reading through Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 6, excuse me, uh, 1 through uh, 7, perhaps 1 through 8. Uh, I don't recall we don't need eight this morning. We'll probably just do seven, um, and then we will review a little bit. So Genesis chapter six, verses one through seven, the Bible says this, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in uh, in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart." And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Okay, so we'll stop at verse 7. And as it relates to the broader narrative, we learn from recounting that the Spirit of God was striving with that of man that, and then also due to their rebellion, God would pronounce upon them 120 years. So when he says in verse 4, I'll go back there for a moment. When he says, excuse me, verse 3, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. What we find in this is God pronouncing at that point that there would be 120 more years before his judgment would come upon man. And he is pronouncing upon man a judgment. And verse 5 tells us more about why. We find that the heart of man was utterly corrupted. His wickedness was great. His thoughts were only evil continually. Now, you might know some people who are that way. You might have met someone before where it seems as though there is nothing running through their mind, but that it is wicked or perverse. But imagine an entire society, imagine an entire civilization that is that way, that the thoughts of that civilization's heart are only wickedness and evil continually. Verses 12 and 13 go on to say that the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. And of course, that is the natural way that this goes, that when the heart of man is perverted, when the thoughts of man become wicked, uh, then there is a, a, a yielding, a giving up of anything that would be called virtue. And the only thing left when virtue is gone is power. And when the only thing that is left is power, then violence will be the inevitable result. And we'll talk about that in another time. So this is the broader narrative, right? Man has corrupted himself. His heart is full of evil. Violence and corruption are everywhere and God is purposed to judge the earth. Remember that. We've been talking about these broad themes going all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam sins. They experience fear. They experience shame for the first time. They are separated from God. Then we're tracing Cain and we're tracing, tracing Seth. And through Cain's line, we see that they are men who had port, their portion in this life. That they were men who were, were ready to devote themselves unto violence. We talked about 
the fact that Lamech's days were the same as Enoch's days, right? They lived at the same time. And that in Enoch's days, he pronounced these judgments upon wickedness, upon ungodly men, and specifically that of ungodly teachers. And we even said that perhaps the idea of angels, as we, we referenced it last week in Second Peter chapter 2, was that of false teachers, messengers in the days of Enoch. And that's what, where, where that, that context would come from. So we talked through all of this, and this is thematically important. So then when we come to Genesis chapter 6, and we start to think through how we're going to interpret this, the question is, well, how does it fit into the broader thematic narratives? We turned our focus last time to some of the more ambiguous elements of the text. Specifically, we talked about the controversy surrounding the identity of the sons of God who procreated with the daughters of men. We'd said, yes, the only reference in the Old Testament to the sons of God is here in Genesis and then in Job. And in Job, it's always referencing angelic beings. Thus, people believe that they were angelic beings. But then we talked about the fact that as we go through the whole of the scriptures, we find in the New Testament a number of times where we are called the sons of God, a number of times where we're called the children of God. Indeed, the nation of Israel were also called the children of God. And so we talked about the fact that this idea of the sons of God, Adam also being called a son of God, talks about a first creation of God. Adam was a first creation of God. Angels were a first creation of God. And those who follow God into faith and so are justified by grace through faith are also, they're made a new creation in Christ. They are also first creations of God. And so we said, well, if it's a first creation of God idea, if those who follow God into the faith are first creations of God as well, then it's entirely possible that this is not a line of angelic beings, but rather the line of Seth, right? The godly line of Seth that stepped out of their heritage of godliness and took upon themselves wives of the daughters of men, that being the lines of Cain, perhaps other of Adam and Eve's uh, children as well. And in doing so, uh, they have invited into their their homes, those who are not followers of the living God, and that can bring about natural corruption, right? That can bring about corruption when there is compromise. And we see, we talked about the fact that, that God had warned the kings of Israel not to mar- marry uh, the daughters of the kings of other nations because they would bring those daughters into their homes and those daughters would bring with them their gods and then their hearts would be turned away from the true living God by the gods of their wives, the false gods of their wives. And so that's sort of an idea. And we connected it, uh, we, we, we explained it that way. And then, of course, explained that in the, in the context of First Peter, Second Peter, and Jude, talking about the angels that sinned, leaving their first estate, being in chains uh, unto judgment. And we connected all of these uh, then, as we were walking through this theory, to Genesis 6, verse 4 which told us that there were giants in those days and that, that they bore unto them these men of renown. We talked about the fact that the giants in those days are not necessarily connected to these men of renown, but that within this Nephilim theory, they said angelic beings procreated with women and they created these Nephilim, these giants, these hybrids, these half-God, half-man, half-angel, half-men hybrid ideas, demonic fathers, uh, human mothers, and thus they were inherently evil, and that this was, within this Nephilim theory, that these, these Nephilim were the root of the evil, the violence, and the corruption in those days, that there were these human angel, human demon hybrids, and that they were the root of corruption. 
and that necessitated the flood. And then finally, of course, we walked through Second uh, Peter, Jude, and First Peter, and and talked about how those didn't necessarily correspond to these ideas either. So those were all the practical reasons that we talked through last time as to why it is this Nephilim theory is not an open and shut case. But all I really did is kind of argue against last time to tell you why it didn't have to be that way. Let me tell you why I think it is absolutely not that way. The Nephilim theory is not just a maybe, but it's a no And not just that it's objectively wrong, but as I said, why it's possible to be dangerous theologically as well. So let's talk about the implications of the idea that we would call the Nephilim theory. Now, the most benign, the the, the least um, dangerous implication of this theory is that the Bible is simply giving us facts about a period of time about a period of rebellion and its ramifications and that it's simply talking about history and that it really has no effect on us, right? Fallen angels, uh, they impregnate human women, uh, an alternate group of humans were created. And we can draw upon some of the things that we know about the incarnation of Jesus Christ to help us understand how that might have been, right? We believe what the Bible says, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that, that, that Mary was uh, um, that she became uh, pregnant with Jesus through the conception of the Holy Spirit of God in her. And as we think through that idea, we, we recognize why it is that God chose to bring Jesus through a virgin birth. It is not just as a great sign, although we know it was a great sign, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. So we know that it was a great sign to validate what the Bible had to say about Messiah coming, but we also recognize another reason why it was important that Jesus would be born of a woman, but not a human man, and that is because of what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 about sin, and the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that we are all sinners in Adam, that as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So death it comes through sin, and sin comes through Adam. From this, we derive the idea that sin is effectively, in the same way that we have genetic propensities that are passed down from parent to child, we would recognize that, as it were, the father, the, 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 that the father passes down the sin nature to his children, that it is through Adam, through the father, through the, the, the one who is the representative of the, of the marriage, the representative of, um, of, of the one that has dominion, that it is through him then, as in Adam all die, so in Christ are all made alive, right? So Adam is the avatar for the sin nature passing from generation to generation. For lack of a better way to describe it, the sin nature is passed from the father to his children. But if Jesus is not born of a human father... If he has a human mother but not a human father, then he bypasses having a sin nature. So that Jesus is the only person that is born outside of this natural inherited sin nature so that Jesus, unlike you and me and everyone else who is born, was not born with that sin nature inside of him. Well, then we have these questions, right? Okay, so now let's say that... These Nephilim are born of a human mother and a demonic father. Well, how would that work? 
they would bypass Adam's sin nature to be sure, right? Because they're not born of Adam. These children, these Nephilim children, would not be born of Adam. So they wouldn't be in Adam. They could still be human. We know Jesus was 100% human, even though he uh, um, was conceived of the Holy Ghost. So they'd still certainly be human. And then the idea that they would have some sort of demonic power, well, why would that be? Jesus did not have power simply because he was born of, he was conceived of the Holy, Holy Ghost. He had power because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, right? So once again, we have the strange ideas, uh, things that don't really necessarily make sense. Continuing in this, as it were, benign way of looking at the Nephilim theory, these men were said to be men of renown. The earth was corrupted. They would have no doubt been a part of that corruption. Noah finds grace in the eyes of God. God destroys the world in a flood. All men are destroyed except Noah and his sons. All of these giants, these men of renown, these men uh, of, of, uh, of greatness, they die. And so you say, well, why does any of it matter anyway? If they died in the flood which they were supposed to have died in the flood, then it's all over, right? Whether, regardless of, of what we could debate today about Nephilim and whatnot, it's over, it's done. They died in the flood until you find that the Nephilim show up again in Numbers chapter 13, right? And then the theory blows up again as to why that might be. So we think through all of these things and some things don't make sense, but at the end of the day, if it were just that, if it were just the idea that the Nephilim were these people and we see in Greek mythology these things and, and it is what it is, and they all died in the flood, no big deal. But that's, of course, not it. That's not enough. That wouldn't be everything. There are some real questions here. So here's the thing. These Nephilim would not be in Adam, right? These Nephilim would not be a part of Adam's race because they were not born of Adam. They would not have Adam's sin, but when Romans chapter 5 talks about sin, the Bible says that Jesus came to die on the cross for sin, to, to pay for sin. As in Adam all died, as in, so, so in Christ many shall be made alive. So if these Nephilim are not in Adam, are they redeemable? See, the angels, they had their choice. They made their choice, right? They follow Satan, they follow God. They chose to follow Satan, they fell. They had a choice. Humanity, we have a choice. We are sinners in Adam. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we each may have a choice. We confront that choice to whether or not we accept or reject Jesus Christ as our Savior, and that choice perpetuates into eternity. We're saved or we're condemned. But if these Nephilim are born of demonic fathers outside of Adam's race, they are not themselves angelic beings, fully formed and in their right minds, then these Nephilim would have been born irredeemable. Does that strike you as being theologically problematic? Could God's character and justice and mercy really allow for an irredeemable race? A race that Jesus would not have died for or given a chance because Jesus died for Adam's race. A race that did not get to make their own choice as the angels did because they're born into this. Born of demonic fathers and human mothers. It does not make sense. It throws a real kink in the gears of what the Bible otherwise presents as a holistic system of God's mercy and God's judgment. 
That being said, it would be easy enough for us to say, well, that's God's business. He's not revealed unto us all mysteries, and that would be that, right? And within the simple and benign application, again, of, the, of this Nephilim theory, that's fair enough. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't really comport with the character of God. But that is a problem, isn't it? See, this is where these things happen. We've talked before about this in the church, where the church allows some feeling, some theory, some idea to override the thoughts or the intents of the Word of God. Where the church has an idea, and they try to shoehorn that idea into what the Word of God says, and in doing so, they do maybe even just a little injustice to the Word of God. We've seen this in history. We saw this with slavery. Right? Whereas the church was really becoming, uh, 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 stepping into its own in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. And people were starting to see that the doctrines of the Word of God do not comport with the realities of the Scriptures. Then you have this little kernel, this little seed of error that says, well, maybe slavery is allowed under this pretense or that pretense. Maybe these lesser races are, are, uh, are actually lesser under this pretense or that pretense. And that little kernel of error can create theological mountains that have to be overcome in future generations of the church. We saw this 50, 60, 70 years ago with the church's attitude toward divorce. Whereas the church used to say, no, divorce is wrong. And then the church started to shift its attitude on divorce. And next thing you know, it's shifting its attitude on the next social thing and the next social thing and the next social thing and the next social thing because we're starting to allow little cracks in the foundation of what the Bible actually says. Cracks which we never had to allow. Again, I'm not saying, in, you know, I know that there, there are several people in this room who have been divorced and I'm not, I, I'm not attacking the, 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 I'm not attacking you, Right? But, just because, but we acknowledge that we live in a flawed and a sinful world. That in a flawed and a sinful world, bad things are going to happen. And that, that, that we're going to do things that are wrong and that those around us are going to do things that are wrong. And there's a difference between saying, you know, in a sin-sick world, sometimes bad things happen and saying, so we're going to accept those bad things. And we're going to say those bad things are okay. There's a difference between those two things, right? We can, we can say these things are not good things, while simultaneously acknowledging that because we're sinners, sometimes bad things are, hap- are going to happen. Sometimes we are going to make mistakes. And we're not going to excuse those mistakes, but we're also not going to, to pretend as though those mistakes aren't mistakes, right? That those wrongs aren't wrongs. And that is kind of the idea here. If we allow for this idea that there's an irredeemable race, well then... What about God's mercy? What about this system that God has erected from beginning to end, where he created history? And from the beginning, the Bible says that Jesus Christ was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. So very clearly, before God even founded the world, he understood that man would fall to sin. He understood that there would be a redemption plan. And he had a plan for that redemption. He understood what would happen with the demons. He understood that, that, that a certain portion of the angels would choose to follow Lucifer. He understood what Lucifer would do. He understood what Adam would do. He knew this, and it was a part of the plan that he's working out unto his will and to our best good. And he has done this from the beginning. And as he charted this course, it, 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 the scriptures flow quite nicely with God's mercy, with God's judgment, with all of these things. But, but then there's this, this question. If the Nephilim are this race 
of men outside of Adam. There's, there's no redemption for them. That puts just this little crack in the foundation of, of, of the plan of God's mercy and of God's justice. And that can be a problem. So, as we think through this idea, we have now a system within this Nephilim theory where the Nephilim, as well as the unbelievers of Adam's race, are set to be judged in the flood, and then Noah is saved. But there's a deeper implication of this, a bigger problem with this. Within this more comprehensive viewpoint, the procreation of fallen angels with human women created hybrid abominations. The, this theory views these men through the lens of Greek mythology, usually through like the Titans, but also through hybrids like Hercules and Achilles and the like. Either way, the view of the events of Genesis 6 are strongly filtered within the Nephilim theory through this lens. And within this viewpoint, the entire narrative of the flood changes. And this is really where the problem comes in. And I don't know if you've talked with people. I had a couple people come up to me afterwards and say, Pastor, thank you for talking on this. I've run across this a lot. And that's been my experience as well, which is why I'm spending time on it. Because at the end of the day, this here, what you see on the screen, which I'll describe, is where this theory ends up, this Nephilim theory ends up. And the narrative as it changes is this, that the Nephilim, these hybrids, were intermarrying with humans and that they were tainting those humans. And that taint was becoming pervasive so that there was actually very little human, pure human, pure blood human left. And Noah and his sons were the last of the pure blood humans. And so within this theory, as God sought to judge the earth, the earth's corruption was the tainting of human DNA with, as it were, demon DNA. It's actually changing from the hearts of men were wicked to Transhumanistic abominations are tainting the purity of humanity. That's a very, very different idea, isn't it? And that very, very different idea changes the reason why God judges the earth, which changes the reason why God gave Noah the ark, which changes everything about the picture of what the ark is supposed to be. And I'm assuming upon your knowledge a little bit this morning, when we get to the ark, we're going to spend an entire message talking about what the ark is meant to to symbolize. But that message will make no sense if you subscribe to the Nephilim theory as it relates to the events of Genesis chapter 6. So the character of the flood and of the ark are completely transformed from being about the sin of mankind and God's judgment for man's wickedness to the corruption of the devil and God's judgment upon those who chose to follow the devil into his corruption. It becomes the first attempt at transhumanism. And God destroys the world because man is attempting to modify his design into some hybrid design. And if we follow this path, you see what just happened. The flood is no longer about sin in that theory. The flood is no longer about humans' sin problem. It's about humans' biological corruption. 
Noah's salvation is not about God's grace upon a man who was righteous before God. It's about him having kept himself pure from tainted DNA. Noah and his sons thus become the only men qualified to be in the ark because they are the only pure bloods. No one else is allowed on the ark. When we get to the ark, when we start talking about the ark, we're going to find something very interesting about the ark. The ark was big. And as uh, the, the, the most recent scholarship today as it relates to the number of kinds of animals that would have to be on the ark, the question is, why was the ark so big? You know, for generations, people said, how could all the animals fit on the ark? Well, if it were genus and species, we'd be having some problems getting all the animals on the ark. But it wasn't. It was by kind. You don't need that many kinds. There's not that many kinds of animals. You wouldn't need a tiger and a lion and a puma and a jaguar and a leopard. You just need one kind of cat with all the all the genetic variability necessary than to branch out into all those different kinds of cats. And so within our understanding of the ark, we say there was extra room on the ark because whosoever will could come. That until the door closed on that ark, that ark was open for anyone who would get in it. Why would Noah be a preacher of righteousness for 120 years if there was nobody to preach to but a bunch of tainted, blooded people? He, he could preach their condemnation, but he couldn't preach righteousness because they could not be, it had nothing to do with righteousness. It had to do with their taint. They were Nephilim. They were tainted. They had the devil's DNA. And that's what this Nephilim theory actually does. The entire picture of the ark as a symbol of God's grace and of God's mercy upon those whose heart is humbled before him is made subservient to a type of pro-humanism Pro-human pride where men are rewarded for having guarded their DNA against the corruption of the devil. So the flood then becomes no longer about the reality that mankind is desperately wicked to its core and needs God's salvation, but rather it becomes God saving men who are naturally and inherently good from the taint of the devil. In other words, it's no longer about I am a sinner, it's about the devil made me do it. And this fundamentally changes the very essence of the picture of what the flood is supposed to represent, the ark is supposed to represent. It actually changes the entire thematic foundation of what we've been talking about in Genesis to this point. In Genesis to this point, we've had God created man in, in unconfirmed holiness. Man corrupted himself through his own rebellion. God then gave man the opportunity to have a relationship with him. Uh, Abel accepts that opportunity. Cain says, no, I'm going to do it my way. And Cain is corrupted in his way. That way continues. The line of Cain ends up with Lamech and his sons, where Lamech sings that song of the sword and says, I will be avenged. I will avenge myself. And the line of Seth begins to call upon the name of the Lord begins to walk with God. All throughout, the distinction that we've seen is between those who choose to love the Lord and receive His grace and His mercy and those who rebel against God. But if the Nephilim theory is true, then everything is turned on its head in Genesis chapter 6 and now it's no longer about man choosing to go God's way or choosing to go Satan's way. It's man being actually physically corrupted, not just in his heart, but in his body, 
And thus, if God does not step in, then man will be tainted. And those ones who are physically corrupted cannot be redeemed. We are not talking about in the, in the next generation of the sons of the Nephilim might be able to repent and come back. No, they have been fundamentally tainted by demon DNA, right? There is no redemption for that. And this is outside of what the Bible has taught us to this point. It's outside of what the gospel will teach us in the future. It is outside of sound doctrine. And so we can say, why does it matter? It's just a theory. They all died in the flood anyway. And we can say that. But there's actually a kernel here that's significantly more potentially insidious as it relates to sound doctrine. So what does the Bible say? Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. See, within the Nephilim theory, man is worthy of being preserved. Man is naturally good. Noah and his sons earned a right to be on that ark by virtue of the fact that they were not tainted. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was not naturally any better than any of the other men, except to the extent that he had chosen to place his faith in God's revealed word. The objective of our life is not to preserve our goodness from the taint of the devil. You are not inherently good. You are unclean before God to your core. Not just you, me. All of us are. There's none of us. We are all as an unclean thing. Every righteousness that we could possibly do is as a filthy rag in and of ourselves. We need God's redemption. We need God's salvation. We need God to clean us up because outside of his cleansing, we, we're wicked. We're sinners. Noah is presented in the Bible in a line of men who were rewarded by God not because they had the intestinal fortitude to reject the devil and his lies, but because they had the humility to admit to the bankruptcy of their own hearts and submit themselves to God by faith. That's what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 tells us. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not, not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is, uh, which is by faith. You see what he became an heir of? He became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. That's what Noah received. That's what this is about. The ark, the flood, is not about the devil tainting and corrupting humanity as it relates to biologically his flesh. It is about God seeking unto those who have not, who, who have faith. And rewarding those who have faith. By the way, it's the same thing with Adam, and then it'll be the same with Abraham, and with Isaac, and with Jacob, and with Joseph, and with David, and with Solomon, and all the way to Jesus. And it's that way when Jesus preaches the gospel, and when Paul preaches the gospel, and when Peter preaches the gospel, and it's been the same gospel now for 2,000 years. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Noah was saved because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was saved by grace through faith. And all of it, as it always has been and always will be, would be then and is now rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what the ark is supposed to represent. 
salvation from the great judgment of God, from the wrath that is to come. All of that goes away if God was actually destroying the world because, de- because demon DNA was encroaching upon the whole of mankind. The gospel teaches us there is none righteous, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the thing which pleases God is not my capacity to keep myself pure from the wicked people that are around me. I don't have that capacity. I'm born in my sin. But my acknowledgement that Jesus died on the cross for me to do for me what I could never do for myself. I cannot be pure. But Jesus took my filth upon himself on the cross and so I can be clothed in his purity, his righteousness by grace through faith. And of this wing of the Nephilim interpretation, we might still say, well, yes, that does great damage to the picture of the ark as salvation. But hey, I mean, it doesn't change Isaiah 64, 6 or John 3, 16. We can still see that man is corrupt due to his sin and that the Nephilim were a tainted race. Yes, but it does matter. And that for a couple of reasons. First, as I mentioned, we do see the Nephilim after Genesis 6. We see them in Numbers 13, 33. Which means that within that theory, somehow, that DNA made it through the flood and mankind can still be tainted. As a matter of fact, if any of you are familiar with the more conspiratorial wings of the internet right now and the things like the Illuminati and Bilderberg and the, 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 the betters that stand over people, those untouchables, within the Nephilim theory now, the Nephilim have been connected to them. This is where those theories end up. But second, it also matters because it inverts the problem of that day. It takes a problem that is within man and it turns it into a problem that is outside of man. Instead of man choosing sin, the devil is now creating an irredeemable race. And now it's just about God and the devil. It's not about my own choices any longer. It takes a picture of salvation whereby man, who has the faith to humble himself by God, uh, but, uh, to humble himself before God when God declares his judgment and he gives a promise of salvation through a boat, takes that picture and it makes it a salvation by works. Keep yourself pure and you can be one of the chosen. Such a modification fundamentally alters the themes upon which the, the, the first chapters of Genesis rest. It muddies the nature of salvation by grace and it invites, quite frankly, a deeply humanistic and pagan view of sin and salvation under the umbrella of Christian doctrine. And that is something which we don't want to do in the church. This creates a lot of ear-tickling division. It, and we're already in one of those ages, right? We're in an age of information, misinformation, disinformation, conspiracies, counter-conspiracies, and the like. And within this kind of an age, the Nephilim theory holds a great deal of allure to the sensibilities of modern religion. It, it holds a great deal of allure to an us-versus-them mindset. Because when you think about what the Nephilim theory espouses, if there are these God, these, these d- demon-man hybrids that are tainted, and then you have the pure bloods, it creates an us-versus-them We are the righteous, they are the tainted sort of a mentality. And if you uh, spend any time on the internet, which of course you should be careful about, 
you, you know that that is the spirit of the day, right? The spirit of the day is us versus them. We are right, they are wrong. We're right about everything. They're wrong about everything. They are the evil ones. We are the righteous ones. And by the way, both sides believe that. And the Nephilim theory tucks nicely into that sort of a way of thinking. And it's a very humanistic way of thinking. And I want to give you an example of this. I told you I was going to give you an example. On this example, I ran across just recently. I'm a part of a couple of messaging groups. And uh, it keeps my ear to the ground on things that are happening within the community. And one of these groups posted something. And, and uh, it, was, it was after I, um, I read it. I read it, and I, I knew it was significant, so I copied it, and I pasted it into my, uh, into my notes-taking app, and I just titled it Sorrow. And the reason why I titled it Sorrow is because it made me so... It hurt my heart to read it. Um, and not, not, not necessarily for, for the reasons one might normally expect, but... It hurt my heart to read it because of the extremely divisive nature of what is written and how they appeal to this very idea of the Nephilim, not, not by name, but this very idea as a part of the reason why they invoke what they do. So uh, this post was actually rooted in the controversy surrounding right now the COVID vaccine. And it reflects the resulting the results of allowing this narrative of the flood to be inverted in the way I described. Now, let me just precursor this. What I'm reading here, uh, I don't know who wrote it. It was posted as, as, as kind of an author unknown type thing, I think. Um, and I'm not reading this as truth. I'm reading this as a post to show you something in it. Um, I know that there are people in here who are vaccinated, people in here who are not, people here that feel very, very strongly about it. I'm not reading this to make a comment one way or another, but I will say this. This comment is very anti-COVID vaccine. But the message said this. He, it, it was entitled, A Message to the Unvaccinated. Even if I were polluted and fully vaccinated, again, his words... I would admire the unvaccinated for withstanding the greatest pressure I have ever seen, even from partners, parents, children, friends, colleagues, and doctors. People who are capable of such personality, courage, and critical thinking ability are undoubtedly the best of humanity. They are everywhere in all ages, levels of education, states, and ideas. They are of a special kind. They are the soldiers that every army of light wants to have in its ranks. Notice immediately there the spiritual invocation invoking a decision as to whether or not to make this healthcare decision with whether or not you are a part of the army of light. The army of light being an invocation to the concept of those who are, a part, who are on God's team. You already see the division that's being made on lines of a physical choice it has nothing to do with whether or not a person has believed in anything about Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with faith or not faith, which is where the Bible draws that line and has everything to do with a physical choice of a physical characteristic. A healthcare decision. Continuing. They are the parents that every child wants to have and the children that every parent dreams of having. They are beings above the average of their societies. They are the essence of the people who have built all cultures and conquered horizons. They are there next to you. They look normal, but they are superheroes. They did what others could not. 
They were the tree that withstood the hurricane of insults, discrimination, and social exclusion. And they did it because they thought they were alone and believed they were the only ones. Banned from their family's tables at Christmas, they never saw anything so cruel. They lost their jobs, let their career sink, had no more money, but they didn't care. They suffered immeasurable discrimination, denunciation, betrayal, and humiliation, but they kept going. Never before in humanity has there been such a casting. Now we know who are the best on planet Earth. Women, men, old, young, rich, poor, of all races or religions, the unvaccinated, the chosen of the invisible ark, the only ones who managed to resist when everything collapsed. That's you. You passed the unimaginable test that many of the toughest Marines, commandos, Green Berets, astronauts, and geniuses could not withstand. You are made of the stuff of the greatest who ever lived, those heroes born among ordinary men who glow in the dark. Um, did you hear it? It said, you are the chosen of the invisible ark. That is a direct allusion to this idea. You are not among the tainted. You are still a pureblood. Therefore, you get to be in the ark of humanity. That's the Nephilim theory. Now, the reason why I called this sorrow was not just the Nephilim part. Apart from the fact that this is hyperbolic. Nobody in America over this, even those that lost their jobs and, and don't get to see their grandchildren anymore, or whatever it might be, um, Anyone who thinks that never before has humanity seen such a casting has never read any history. Japanese internment camps, much less the Holocaust. What Christians are going through right now in Somalia, Syria, Iran, Malaysia. We read just this past week the Haas family's letter from Cambodia where they tried to bring the gospel into a village and that village completely disowned everyone who represented Christ in, in, in the, the village. We're not just talking about not being able to get, keep your job. We're talking about not being able to get a job. We're not talking about not being able to see your family anymore except over Zoom. We're talking about people who now are 100% disowned from their families. Now, some people have had to endure a measure of that with the controversies surrounding this, but great hyperbole. That's one of the reasons why this sorrow filled my heart. But what I'm focusing on today is this allusion to the time of the flood. And by the way, you know, for those of you that read that and I, I um, or heard that and, um, Again, I, I was not reading that to, to make you feel one way or the other as it relates to your choice as far as that, that decision was concerned. Um, I certainly don't agree with what was written here. Um, but we focus on this idea. The unvaccinated here are called toward the end, the best on planet Earth, the chosen of the invisible ark, the one who managed to resist when everything collapsed. The question must be asked, how does the illusion of the ark come into being one of the chosen? The gospel narrative itself wouldn't do that. The gospel narrative is a narrative of humility when a man flees to the grace of God to save himself from a taint that he knows is already inside of him. 
right? The gospel narrative says, I am a sinner and I need grace. That's the gospel narrative. The gospel narrative is not, I have saved myself from the taint, therefore God is going to reward me. The gospel narrative is, Lord, I am tainted. I need you to cleanse me. That's the gospel narrative. But what does this say? This says the gospel narrative is not about the humble, the brokenhearted, and the contrite, but it fits perfectly into the Nephilim narrative, doesn't it? That a chosen few had the personality, the courage, and the critical thinking ability to withstand the greatest taint and now have become transcendent, the pure in humanity. These claims are soiled in their own pride and contempt for others. And that's where my sorrow came from. And this perspective of the flood and of the ark is a derivative of the idea that the judgment of the flood was not about man being saved from his sin, but about man being rewarded for having kept himself pure from an an external taint. At best, at best, When this theory is espoused, it is a muddying of the waters of all of the the, the natural foundational themes that God has put in place in Genesis to this point. But at worst, and this is why I spent, I thought it necessary to spend two messages on it. At worst, it is a 100% inversion of the clearest and, and one of the absolute clearest and most poignant reflections of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. If you truly want someone to understand, when, when my oldest daughters were, when we were trying to help them understand the gospel, it was Noah and the flood that connected to them. Who is going to get in the boat was the question. Are you going to get in the boat? The boat is Jesus. The boat is salvation. You know that you are headed for judgment. God has announced that judgment. That judgment is coming and anyone who gets in the boat will be saved. That, that, that account of Noah's flood, this is one of, along with, I'd say along with the Passover, are the two most poignant illustrations in the entire Bible of salvation from judgment by grace through faith. And so when the Nephilim theory comes into play, what it does is it takes one of those poignant examples of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it inverts it. It turns it on its head. It's an embodiment of the Romans chapter 1 verse 25 idea of man who changes the truth of God into a lie and worships and serves the creature more than the creator who elevates the fortitude of man and the purity of humanity above the grace of a creator upon a fallen race. And it is for this reason that I find myself much less agnostic about any sort of Nephilim theory than I otherwise would be. Normally, I would just roll my eyes, dismiss it, and move on. But I can't do that with this one. And the reason why, under normal circumstances, I would content myself in knowing that whatever happened, it all ended with the flood, and we can just move on. But for those who walk down the path that that theory charts, many times it does not end with a simple disagreement surrounding the trivial ideas of what happened prior to the flood. It actually challenges the very core of the Christian teaching on the the sinfulness of man and why it is that God will judge the earth and what salvation is intended to be. 
It taps into man's pride rather than man's humility. It fosters contempt rather than love. It serves to divide humanity along, along the wrong lines. And I believe in this way it is a very dangerous line of thought. But what Genesis actually says is that the Lord's Spirit would not always strive with man. He doesn't say, my spirit will not always strive with the devil. He doesn't say, my spirit will not always strive with demons. He says, my spirit will not always strive with man. Man was striving against the Spirit of God. Men were the problem, not demons. The Bible teaches in Genesis 6-5 that God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth, not the wickedness of demons, not the wickedness of Satan. Now, they, they are wicked, absolutely. It does not say that he saw the wickedness of titans or of hybrids. It says he saw the wickedness of man, that it was great. We can read all sorts of things into it, but let's, let's look at what the text says. The text says that the Spirit of God strove against man. The text says that man's wickedness was great in the earth. The text says that every imagination of the heart of men was evil continually. The problem was not the devil. He is a problem, no doubt, right? He's active, no doubt. We know that. Go back to my spiritual warfare series. You can be reminded all about that. It's on YouTube. The problem wasn't fallen angels. Fallen angels are a problem. They're busy about the work on this earth. We know that. But when God decided that the earth had only 120 years left before judgment, the reason why that judgment was fast approaching, the reason credited for that judgment in the Bible was the depth of human sin, of wickedness in the heart. So much so that verse 6 tells us, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth and it grieved him at his heart. In this moment, God was not grieved that he had made the angels that fell into sin. In this moment, God was grieved that he had made man because man had corrupted himself. And to this point, one would ask, Pastor, did God make a mistake then? God repented. Does that mean that God makes mistakes? Was this an unforeseen circumstance? No, that's what we're going to talk about next week. The purpose of this statement, however, is not to expound upon the character of God. It's meant to expound upon the character of man. It doesn't reveal God's limitations. It reveals the depth of man's rebellion and corruption in himself. So wicked, so evil, so depraved, so lost is mankind in the corruption of his own sinful heart that even when God had killed those animals to clothe Adam and Eve. And when God had provided another seed as the substitute for Abel, whom Cain slew, even when, uh, when, when God had shown his mercy and his love for those thousands of years, mankind brought God to the very edge of his divine mercy. He pushed him as far as man could push him. And so God determined, verse 7, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. God determined to destroy man and beast and creeping thing and bird, all of the things that had been tainted by the curse that was brought by Adam onto the earth. Or at least most of them. But not all of them. And there's one reason and one reason alone in the Bible why it is that God did not destroy all of them. Verse 8. But Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. 
It does not say, but Noah was not one of the tainted ones. It does not say, but Noah happened to not be a sinner. It is because God, in his love, extended his grace to a man who believed the word of God. That's the gospel. None of us is righteous. There is none righteous. No, not one. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. You may have done generally good things in your life. You may have been a generally good person, but all of our righteousnesses in the eyes of God are as filthy rags. You are not a good person, and I am not a good person. And thank God for that. Why? Because Jesus Christ said when he came, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Because when Jesus died on the cross, because there is none righteous, we are all wicked. That means that there's a great leveling of mankind. God did not come and say, I will save the rich, but not the poor. I will save the the man, but not the woman. I will save the white man, but not the black man. Jesus did not come with that message. Jesus came and said, I will save sinners. And by the way, every single man and woman is a sinner. And he said, anyone who is a sinner and comes unto me, I will receive and I will save. Which means no matter whether you're rich or poor, bond or free, male or female, black or white, you can receive the same grace by the same God who loves you and who sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. The great leveling of the gospel means the great leveling of redemption so that any man, any woman, anywhere across the world, no matter your education level, no matter your wealth, no matter your privileges, no matter your access, can be saved because it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what Jesus already did for you. And that is the great gospel. The great gospel that we see in Adam and Eve when God clothes them in the garden. The great gospel that we see when God says to Cain, when Cain's sacrifice is rejected, if you do, not well, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you will but receive, will you not be accepted? And it's the same gospel that we see in Noah's day when man was sinful and had corrupted himself. But God said, I'm going to build an ark. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the lesson of the flood. We'll talk a lot more about that in the coming weeks. And may that be the lesson that forges itself in our heart. Not a lesson that divides humanity along the lines of our choices, our wisdom, our capacity to have insights, the, 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 the things that we have been able to do to save ourselves from, from, from the wickedness of others. These are not lines to divide humanity along in the eyes of God. But only this, John 3.18, He that believeth is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.